We've now heard two of the seven public hearings promised by the January 6th House Committee, and they'll start again tomorrow afternoon. The bipartisan group has only just begun laying out its investigation into the attempted insurrection and all the other ways former President Donald Trump cast doubt on the 2020 election results. Fired Fox News political editor Chris Steyerwalt testified as to why Republicans appeared to have a lead on Election Day. It's because more Republicans vote in person, while more Democrats vote absentee, meaning the GOP votes are simply counted first. So in every election, and certainly a national election, you expect to see the Republican with a lead, but it's not really a lead. Um, When you put together a jigsaw puzzle, it doesn't matter which piece you put in first, it ends up with the same image. So for us... Who cares? Uh, But that's because no candidate had ever tried to avail themselves of this quirk in the election counting system. We had gone to pains, uh, and I'm proud of the pains we went to, to make sure that we were informing viewers that this was going to happen because the Trump uh, campaign and the president had made it clear that they were going to try to exploit this anomaly. And we knew it was going to be bigger because the percentage of early votes was higher. But it's not just 2020. Election experts are watching the hearings with an eye on this year's midterms and the general election in 2024. We'll get into all that and more after the break. This conversation is part of our Remaking America project, where we'll spend the next two years exploring how democracy is working and how it's not. I'm Jen White, and you're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. To join future conversations or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming, and many are burned out without even knowing it. Ongoing struggles in any of life's roles can lead to fatigue and feeling helpless. Prioritize yourself by talking with someone. BetterHelp Online Therapy offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with a professional therapist. Be matched with your therapist within 48 hours and get 10% off your first month of online therapy at BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Let's jump into the conversation. Joining us now is David Becker. He's the executive director of the Center for Election Innovation and Research. That's a nonpartisan nonprofit based in D.C. David, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Jen. Great to be with you. Joining us from Dallas is Jessica Hoosman. She's the editorial director for VoteBeat. That's a nonprofit newsroom covering elections. Jessica, it's great to have you back. Thanks so much. So I'd love to hear from both of you what your biggest takeaways from the the, uh, hearings are so far. David, I'll come to you first. Sure. I think one of the things that's most striking, and I, you know, as you pointed out, we've only heard two of the hearings so far, really only about four or five hours of testimony, is how compelling and comprehensive and deliberative the case that is being put together is. That it's going all the way up to then-President Trump, the losing presidential candidate, establishing uh, the depth of the big lie, the lie that the election was stolen. It is a fact that the election was not stolen, that it was the most transparent and secure election in American history. And the demonstration that um, President Trump likely knew that from the very beginning um, and still proceeded with propelling this lie and that was likely dri- driving um, fundraising Uh, et cetera, over time, and the impact that that lie is still having today, even though there is no question it is a lie. Um, And we're seeing that in 
campaigns going on right now all across the country in Republican primaries predominantly, um, and the impact that could have uh, in elections this year and, of course, going forward. Jessica, what about for you, your biggest takeaways? You know, I agree with everything that that David said. I, I think that I have been most struck by how clear it was that Donald Trump knew that what he was saying was was not true. And and it's a particularly defeating thing to feel as someone who, and I'm sure David feels the same way, had to go on the radio and on TV and write all these explainers about everything that he was saying that was not true. Um, and, and to know that the entire time he was aware that what he was saying was true is, is a little bit defeating. Well, Trump's own campaign advisors and, and family have testified. They told him this was a false claim, but he continued to spread it. And a lot of people believed him, including local lawmakers. Jessica, how has this lie already affected election laws? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that that's a really important thing to keep in mind is that just because he knew he wasn't telling the truth doesn't mean that lawmakers didn't take him seriously. And there were a lot of laws that passed in the last few months um, as a result of the claims that he made about 2020 in Texas, in Georgia, in Arizona, in states across the country um, that have really made voting less convenient um, and and more difficult for no clear purpose. Um, And that's becoming more and more obvious as the hearings go on. And what have you been hearing from election officials and administrators as they watch the hearings, Jessica? You know, I think that sense of defeatism is is really the thing that I'm hearing most most frequently about. You know, I, 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 someone I was talking to the other day related it to finding out that the other team was on steroids the entire time, right? Like that you worked really hard and you did everything that you were supposed to do by the rules, and the person across the across the field was was breaking all of the rules and doing so knowingly. It's it's a it's an unfair thing to feel, and and I think that I I sympathize with with that that feeling of of helplessness. David, as you look at the way some state legislatures have responded to this claim of election fraud, this false claim, what's been most striking for you? Well, I think what's striking is that we're seeing. Um, election deniers, people who are embracing the big lie, whether they believe it or not, um, use the language of election integrity to actually dismantle the infrastructure of election integrity. Jessica's quite right. Um, Legislatures are making voting less convenient. They're also making voting less secure. And a great example is um, exactly what Mr. Starwalt was talking about with regard to the red mirage and the blue wave, which which was an effect that we all knew about. There were articles written about it. I spoke to the press about it in August and September of 2020 that um, although in the past mail voting had been pretty evenly split between Republicans and Democrats, um, Republicans were choosing that option less because the president was lying about the security of mail voting. So the mail ballots tended to skew much more Democratic than they might have otherwise. We knew this was likely going to happen. We also knew there was going to be more mail voting Um, than ever before due to the pandemic. In fact, over 100 million voters voted early or by mail in um, 2020 
meaning there were actually fewer election day voters in 2020, even with the high turnout, than there were in 2016, just because so many people voted early. But we also knew that that was going to delay the vote counts in places like Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, because those state legislatures, dominated by Republicans, refused to allow pre-processing of those mail ballots as they allow in other Republican states like Ohio and Florida. So this is all something that was known ahead of time. It was largely created by Trump himself because of his lying rhetoric. And that problem has still not been addressed in those states. Meanwhile, we're seeing um, legislation that is actually making, bringing more chaos and confusion to the post-election process. And then we see outside of the legislative environment, we're seeing things like a small county in New Mexico, Otero County, where um, the county is refusing to certify ballots from their recent primary not because there were any problems, just because they don't like the Dominion machines because of lies that have been spread by Trump. So we're seeing chaos and confusion reign, disenfranchisement of literally every single voter in that county by refusing to certify them. And this is what our future might look like as the big lie is being spread. Well, I spoke with committee member Elaine Luria. She's a Democrat from Virginia on Tuesday. And I asked her how confident she is in our election laws. You know, we're a legislative committee. So one of our main areas of focus, you know, in this aspect of the investigation is what are the vulnerabilities in our election laws um, that allowed something like this to almost succeed? And what needs to be done to make sure that it couldn't happen again in the future? And examples of things that we will be looking at and are considering throughout this are the Electoral Count Act, you know, some of these campaign finance um, things as well. Jessica, remind us what the Electoral Count Act is and why it matters. Sure. The Electoral Count Act was written in the late 1800s, and it is the the rules and procedures by which folks can object to an electoral count vote. Um, it, it sort of, in, in very broad and unclear ways, lays out exactly what it means to object to an electoral count, um, an electoral college vote. Um, and, and we saw the folks do that in the, in, on, on January 6th, right? All, all it currently requires is one senator and one representative to object, um, for any reason they feel like it really. Um, and, and, and so I think that the, there is a movement to shore those rules up. So so there's, such that there is less confusion and less wiggle room. Um, if you're going to object to an electoral college vote, it'll have to, you know, really meet some sort of standard definition for, for something that, that was problematic rather than just something that we made up um, and decided was problematic in order to, to object to it. Um, and, and so that, that's what, what she's talking about there. And I think that that's probably the most obvious path, path forward in terms of bipartisan um, election innovation, let's call it innovation, um, that that we're going to be able to accomplish in the next next couple of months. David, are there other changes to the Electoral Count Act that you think could help improve or or secure our elections? So Jessica uh, nailed it on the head. Um, This is a 150-year-old law, and it's trying to clarify because of a problem that occurred during the election of 1876. Um, some aspects of Article I and Article II of the Constitution with regard to the election of the president. And um, right now, it allows anyone to object for any reason and has a very low threshold for um, the number of objections. Uh, it, 
you know, it doesn't make clear exactly what the vice president's role is. And so there are some really constructive conversations happening right now in Congress, and I'm um, cautiously optimistic that those will yield some something here that will make clear that um, you can't just object for any reason. You can't object because you don't like the laws that were in place that were upheld by the courts in other states. You can't do that. The rules are litigated ahead of time. We all knew the rules going into it. Um, that applies to both parties, obviously. You, um, there might be legitimate reasons to object. There might be dual certified slates that happened most recently in 1960-61 in Hawaii. There could be a state might not deliver a certified slate. That is a problem. It hasn't happened recently, but it could happen. There could be faithless electors who've been pledged to a candidate and choose to vote for someone else. Those are all potentially legitimate reasons to object. But you can't object because you don't like the rules. And then the threshold for the objection probably should be larger than just one person in each house to, um, to allow for that objection to proceed and for a vote to ultimately be taken. And then I think most importantly, make clear that um, the insane idea that the vice president can just decide to choose the president of the United States or reject the will of the voters is nowhere to be found in the Constitution. It cannot be upheld in the Constitution. And make clear that the vice president's role, as Vice President Pence acknowledged to his great credit, that the vice president's role is ceremonial. It is ministerial. You're just opening votes that you already know what they are. You already know the outcome. Um, and just announcing the winner, not determining the winner. Let's go to this voicemail we got from one of you listening in Ohio. I beg to differ with these hearings politically are not going to change anyone's mind. One, I've already seen a shift in narrative from the big lie on the part of Trump apologists to, well, maybe Trump made some mistakes, you know, but et cetera, et cetera. Uh, This is monumental in and of itself. Secondly, Fox News itself covered the hearings yesterday, reaching many uh, as they were a subject of the hearings, and that too in a light that uh, illuminated how they set the record straight in spreading the truth of the election. Jessica, how are Republicans outside of the committee reacting to these hearings? I think it's kind of hard to say at this point. You know, I mean, this is this is a a situation in which certainly, as David said, they this is well choreographed, this is well articulated, this is well argued, um, but it is only one one side, um, and and so I think that in the weeks that that follow the hearing, we'll we'll watch them mount their case to the extent that they have one, and and so I think it's just. We just got to wait and see. I, I, I have been surprised, as as your caller indicated, that um, that this has been a little bit more effective than I assumed that it would be. Um, that this is a, a little bit more compelling and a little bit more difficult to wiggle out of than than I think that a lot of people felt it it, it might turn out to be for for the for the former Trump administration. Um, and and so I think the best thing to do is just is just to wait and see. You know, when I listen to folks who send messages into the show, there are some who are part of the the group who believe uh, the big lie, but then there are people who are just concerned that our elections are not as secure as they should be, and that the the presidential election, the attack on the Capitol, it makes them deeply concerned about what could happen during the next election. David, what role do you think these hearings play in, in helping rebuild faith in our election system? 
Well, I think um, Jessica, of course, is, is quite right about you know the impact of the hearings. I think they're doing as good a job as they can. Whether they'll change any minds, we'll have, we'll have yet to see. Um, but, but I will point out that there has been um, the, the resilience of the election denial lie has uh, been strong. And we've seen roughly 30% of the American electorate, give or take, believe the election was stolen from November 2020 to today. And it's been very resilient because um, the liars, the grifters who are, um, who are encouraging this lie and making money off of it have a lot of incentive to keep it going. And so I think these hearings have been really important to demonstrate that it is a lie, um, that uh, you know, there, there, are, there are two sides to this, but what the, what the um, committee is showing is that their side is the sky is blue, water is wet side. It is the truth. It is a fact. And you know, we can, what American voters should understand is that actually our elections are as secure as they've ever been. We have more paper ballots. 95% of all ballots in the nation are cast on paper. That is verifiable and auditable. There are more audits of those ballots than ever before. 43 states in D.C., the most ever audited their ballots in 2020, including all of the battleground states that needed to. Georgia famously counted every single presidential vote in its state three times, once entirely by hand. So the, the, the security of our election system is a fact, and we need to do a better job of communicating it. I think the committee is doing a good job of that. Kay Sharpies tweeted, is it possible to communicate to Trump supporters that this is an actual important issue, that this wasn't just a protest? It was an actual attempted coup and therefore treason. On January 6, 2021, I had co-workers telling me it wasn't that important or, oh, it's nothing, as I watched footage of a literal gallows being set up and Congress being invaded. I'm seeing more people of that same mindset asking why we care because it happened over a year ago. We're discussing what we're learning from the January 6th hearings and what they tell us about our future elections. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. Let's get back to our conversation on trust in our elections. David, there's a new group of candidates winning primaries this year, Republicans who are election deniers. The Washington Post reports that more than 100 Republican primary winners also believe in the so-called big lie. How big of a deal is this? This is a very big deal, particularly when they might have control over uh, administration of elections as they do in several states. We just saw an election denier win the Republican primary for Secretary of State of Nevada yesterday. Um, we've seen this in some other states as well. And it's also happening at the local level in primaries and um, positions like clerk and other positions like that. And um, this is potentially leading to chaos, confusion. I, it, in most cases, in most elections, I think it's very hard to install the loser of the election as the winner. Um, the presidential election might be the one exception to that, but most of the courts are going to be pretty firm about that. But the amount of confusion and chaos that can result from election officials who uh, defy their oaths, don't do their duties, what we're seeing literally right now happen in Otero County, New Mexico, where they're refusing to certify legitimate ballots cast in a primary election, not even a general election. Um, without any evidence of any problems whatsoever, disenfranchising every single voter in that county. Um, that's going to create confusion in the, in the process overall. It's going to potentially create 
instability that could lead to political violence. This isn't hypothetical. This is what we saw on January 6th. And so I have a lot of concerns about that, and I think we're in the middle of it right now. It's not something we have to wait till 2024 to see. You mentioned Nevada and Pennsylvania. Are there other races you're watching closely right now? Yeah, there's an indicted uh, clerk uh, running for the Republican nomination uh, for Secretary of State in Colorado. Um, There are other uh, races around the country uh, for Secretary of State, for, um, again, local county offices like clerk offices, like DA offices, where whether these candidates actually believe it or not, they are embracing the big lie to keep their potential voters um, angry and upset um, and that is it, the, the fact is some of these people are going to win um, based on the electoral dynamics and whatever jurisdiction they're running in. And that could create massive problems that we really don't have to imagine they're happening right now. Jessica, what races are you watching? You know, I, I, I think that I would echo all of the same ones that, that David said. I know that we're probably just getting a little boring for your listeners right now, but I, but I think the the New Mexico races and the Colorado races are, are particularly um, interesting for me. I mean, I, I, I think that it is, it is upsetting that um, Doug Mastriano is is the lead candidate um, for governor for the Republican Party in Pennsylvania. Um, and and given that state's rules would have quite a lot of authority in terms of the administration of elections in that state. He gets to appoint the Secretary of State, for example, in that state um, going forward if he, if he were to win that election against the Democratic candidate. Um, and, and that's a lot of control to have over, over elections that you don't think are, are run well uh, with no factual basis. Um, so, so I think that that is the most concerning for me. We got this email from Wendy who says, I'm quite confident that the last election was fair, but I worry about the future. How much power will governors or state legislatures have to appoint biased secretaries of state who will jeopardize the integrity of the election? Jessica, can you zoom out and just give us a a picture of what that could look like nationally? Yeah, you know, I mean, Pennsylvania is actually quite unique in this in this respect, which is that the the governor gets to appoint the secretary of state there. In a lot of states, this is an elected position, or even if it is an appointed position, um, does not have nearly as much authority over elections in the state as as they do in Pennsylvania. Um, you know, in Pennsylvania, they have quite a lot of authority. In Texas, for example, you can, the, the governor does get to appoint the secretary of state, um, but the secretary of state has it has has quite a quite a small amount of authority over the actual mechanics of elections. The counties have much more authority collectively than than the the Secretary of State does here. Um, so so it, it's actually pretty rare that the that the governor gets to appoint with no real. Um, caution on either side um uh, whoever they'd like to let them do whatever they'd want they want they're they're this is cushioned in most states well one thing the committee laid out was how much money was made off the fraud allegations here's amanda wick a senior investigative counsel for the committee testifying at monday's hearing Between Election Day and January 6th, the Trump campaign sent millions of fundraising emails to Trump supporters, sometimes as many as 25 a day. The emails claimed the, quote, left-wing mob was undermining the election 
implored supporters to, quote, step up to protect the integrity of the election and encouraged them to, quote, fight back. But as the select committee has demonstrated, the Trump campaign knew these claims of voter fraud were false, yet they continued to barrage small-dollar donors with emails, encouraging them to donate to something called the Official Election Defense Fund. The select committee discovered no such fund existed. That fund, which again did not exist, raised $250 million. The committee said most of the money went to a newly created political action committee instead. David, were you surprised by the amount of money that was raised, but also the fact that the money was at the heart of this? Uh, I wasn't surprised at all, but I think the committee did a very good job of laying it out in a very clear and coherent way. That $250 million is likely just the tip of the iceberg. It was likely well more than that, because remember, that's just the Trump campaign. There were also others who were fundraising and, in fact, continue to fundraise off the big lie to this day. I mean, Sidney Powell famously raised about $20 million in the weeks after the election. And I think it's really telling that they've laid out such a strong case that the president knew that what he's saying was a lie, that he was spreading this lie, kind of a massive fraud, to his supporters who were the targets of this fraud. And they were contributing money, buying what they thought was a defense against a stolen election and, in fact, was just lining the pockets of those who were lying to them. I think a great example of that is that despite this $250 million plus that was raised by the Trump campaign in the weeks after the election, they, they had an absolute right, the Trump campaign, to a full statewide recount in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. State law re- allowed them to do that. All they had to do was pay for it. And that... Um, that recount in each of those states would have cost less than one-tenth of that $250 million, probably less than $20 million. And they chose not to recount on a statewide basis any of those three states. So even though they could have done that, even though that was a necessary predicate to them showing some kind of fraud or some kind of problem, the Trump campaign itself declined to do that, instead pocketing the roughly $20 million along with all the rest that they were raising. So just that that bears repeating. There's this at least $250 million that was created um, to <laughs> defend the election, to try to prove election fraud. They could have had a recount in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, and they didn't because they didn't want to pay for it. That's exactly right. I mean, they recounted two small two counties in Wisconsin, um, neither of which used Dominion voting systems, by the way. Um, they were the two most Democratic counties, Dane County and, and Milwaukee County. But they recounted nothing in the remaining in the rest of those three states. Um, they didn't recount Michigan or Pennsylvania at all. And it's also important to note that Pennsylvania, for the first time in decades, had paper ballots statewide in 2020. It was much more secure and transparent and audited than it ever could have been before. And so a recount might have been useful. We were, saw that process play out recently in the Republican Senate primary. Um, but this, they declined to do that. And so, you know, if you imagine any kind of fraud, what you want to establish, um, and I, I'm, I'm a former Justice Department lawyer myself, but what you want to establish is intent and knowledge on the part of the one committing the fraud, that they knew it was a lie, and then the amount of the fraud, the targets of the fraud, how they committed that fraud. And um, the committee is laying that out pretty clearly right now. And in addition to the attempted coup, in addition to the attempt to subvert American democracy, subvert the will of the people, subvert the actions of Congress, there is also very strong evidence about what we might 
view as just a very widespread but fairly run-of-the-mill fraud. We got this tweet from Debbie who says the January 6th committee needs to subpoena Trump when he refuses, refer him to the DOJ. His actions and those of others on January 6th cannot go unchecked nor unpunished. If not held accountable, he will run for office again and January 6th will have been a dress rehearsal. Democracy and the U.S. future are in the balance. A recent Morning Consult political poll found that 63 percent of Americans believe the DOJ should bring legal action against elected officials who misled Americans about the outcome of an election. Another 67 percent believe the DOJ should bring legal action against election officials who actually attempted to overturn the results of an election. So that's what voters say they want. Jessica, what do we know about what might actually happen? You know, the 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 commission has has offered no indication that they will be subpoenaing the former president. I, I think that they probably will not. They obviously don't have um, power. They have the power to criminally indict anyone. Uh, the DOJ would have to do that on their behalf. Um, and and I think the committee has been sending mixed messages as to what the what the real intent of of their evidence is is for. Right? Is are they do they plan on issuing a a recommendation for the DOJ to move forward with with criminal charges, or or do they plan to let the DOJ do what it will on that on that front? Um, you know, I, I think that the most likely scenario is that the DOJ takes up pieces of this. And and certainly the DOJ has already suggested that that they are doing some amount of investigation already on these same issues. So I think we just have to wait and see. David, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to note that Congress doesn't have um, the ability to prosecute people for crimes, even when its subpoenas are uh, defied, as we've seen during these committee hearings, um, they have to refer those to the Justice Department. And the Justice Department has enforced a couple of them, but also declined to enforce a couple of the subpoenas, uh, likely because they viewed the um, claim of executive privilege to be stronger in those cases. It would certainly be strong when, if it was claimed by the former president. Um, but uh, it's also important to note that Congress has one power that it already tried, which was the impeachment power. And the impeachment power would result in disqualification to run for future office. But of course, that um, the conviction for impeachment didn't occur in, in February of 2021. I think there are whether the whether the committee refers a recommendation to the Justice Department or not, there's a big variable here that we don't know about. And that is, to what degree is the Department of Justice already investigating many of these things? Do they already know some of these things? It is not department policy to um, keep the public aware of every step of an ongoing investigation, most likely because, and for very good reason, it might not pan out. They don't want to accuse someone of something before it becomes public. But the there might be investigations going on. Certainly the attorney general has indicated that he and his staff are watching these committee hearings very closely. They might already know much of this. Much of this was already known in advance, um, but seeing the testimony is is different. And so I think we'll, we'll have to wait and see, but we also have to recognize that we are 590 days since the November 3rd, 2020 election. During that time, the Trump campaign has not brought forth a single shred of evidence to confirm that the election was stolen, that there were any problems with the election before a court that would that that has upheld them. The courts have unanimously found that these claims were frivolous. But during that time, election officials, as Jessica noted, are weary. They're exhausted. They've been under threat and harassment constantly. 
And so hopefully there is something coming down the pike very soon to hold those who attempted to subvert the will of American voters, who attempted a coup, who attempted to commit a fraud successfully on the supporters of the president, to hold them all accountable. That's David Becker. He's the executive director of the Center for Election Innovation and Research, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization based in D.C. Also with us, Jessica Hoosman, the editorial director for VoteBeat, a nonprofit newsroom covering elections. David, Jessica, thanks. This conversation was part of our Remaking America project, where we'll spend the next two years exploring how democracy is working and how it's not. Remaking America is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Today's producers were June Leffler and Amanda Williams. Our podcast is produced by Barb Anguiano. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.